1 uh, Corinthians 15. Let me set the setting for you. This is about 55 AD. And uh, there was a common, it was the teaching of Greek philosophy. They taught the immortality of the soul, but the body just ended. And so among the Corinthians, uh, the error is going through them that there is no physical resurrection. And that uh, to go along with Plato and Socrates, we just die and we cease to exist. That's it. They would say even some scholars, even a William Barclay says, our personality goes on, but not our body, uh, which is heresy and everything contrary to what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians. His primary thrust in this chapter is to comfort the Corinthians that there is a physical bodily resurrection due the believer in the future, and we believe unbelievers also. But to do so, to get there, he establishes the great cornerstone of it is the resurrection of Christ himself. He's the living proof that God can raise dead men and let them come back in a body uh, and be seen among us, eat among us. And so he is going to give three deductive arguments in the chapter, very logical. And he says three things. He says that if Christ is not raised, I'm wasting time and I'm an Elmer Gantry to be up here preaching because I'm preaching myth, I'm preaching vanity, and it's a waste of time and energy. It's a waste. Secondly, in verse 17, he says, all of you must know if Christ be not raised, you are still perishing, you're still slaves to sin, and everything you believed is a make-believe fable that has no effect. You're, you're still lost, and this is a bunch of fables and myths. Finally, he said, I'm paying with my life to make Christ known throughout Asia Minor. I've bled in Derby, in Lystria. I've been stoned. I've been shipwrecked. I've been on the sea for three days and three nights. And he said, all my suffering is useless. What I ought to do is get high and just party away my life because there's nothing worth suffering for that much. But if Christ is alive, if he really is alive, I'm not wasting my life to suffer to make him known to the generation of Paul's day. And so, let's just look at his three lines of reasoning and see what his rebuttals to them are. First of all, he says, believing is a waste of time if it's not based upon historical fact. Verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. All of Christianity uh, is a farce unless it's based upon truth. Unless it's based upon truth. So what Paul does, he comes back to defend, we have not believed lies, we have not been deceived, and he raises three arguments that have never been successfully refuted. He says, there's three reasons I believe in the resurrection of Christ. 
Three reasons. Number one, the tomb's empty. Where is he? We've seen sightings of Elvis, but these people ate with the resurrected Christ, talked with him over 40 days. He appeared to 15 different groups of people over 40 days by many infallible proofs. So first of all, we've got an empty tomb. It's interesting, uh, during Ramadan, uh, the Islam and Mohammedan world, they go to Medina to celebrate the burial place of the founder. No, no founder of any religion has ever said, come back and worship at the place that I've vacated. They're all in the grave. Christ said, I will be crucified, but I will be raised in three days. He said that something like 15 times before it ever happened. He constantly said, I'm going to be turned over to the Gentiles. I'm going to be killed by the Jews. The world is going to be accountable for my death, but three days later, I will rise again. If you want to kill Christianity, you must produce the body. And of all places to produce it would be in Jerusalem in an Orthodox Jewish community that hated this rabbinic teacher, hated what he said. He was an enemy of Moses and the law, but no one has ever produced that body, but it has been seen on numerous occasions. Second thing he says, the reason we believe it is there have been many witnesses that has seen him alive. Now, this is what's interesting. We believe that Corinthians was written around 55 AD. Christ crucified around 33 AD. So we got 16 to 20 years difference. And, and Paul says, we have many witnesses that are still living. Over 500 saw him at one time. James saw him. Peter saw him. The women at the tomb, and on and on. But he says, these people, for the most part, are still alive at the time he's writing this book. Go talk to them. Go. Many of them have probably fled Jerusalem. Some could be in Corinth, a metropolitan city. But he said, most of them are still alive. Look them up. Talk to them. It's amazing what you could do with history when you don't like it. You could be a total revisionist. American slavery never happened. None of you saw it. How can you believe anything you haven't seen? Well, most of you haven't seen your brain. <laughs> We're taking it by faith. And sometimes we doubt. But I believe in a lot of things I've not seen. I just watched uh, Robert Burns' uh, PBS classic on the Civil War. Any of you see that? Went for five nights. You know one of the great things about the Civil War, while we know, how, none of you were there, were you? 61, 1861 to 65. But he said, we have 1,000,000 photographs of the Civil War. 1,000,000 photographs. Uh, you take... Uh, if you're heading up the country of Iran, uh, the ruler could just flatly say there was no such thing as the Holocaust. It's a Jewish invention. How many pictures do you think we took of World War II? Do we have documentation? You see, there's some people don't believe anything they don't see, touch, feel, handle. 
They don't buy any history. That's a part of the 60s drug culture, existentialist. The only thing I believe in, baby, is what I'm experiencing. I don't know anything about the past. I don't think there's going to be a future. Right now is the only thing to live for. And let's get high. History doesn't matter. But Paul said, you know what? This matter that I bring before you can withstand scientific investigation. We can talk to you. A lot of people say, well, what do I do with somebody in 2011? Says, well, I, I've never seen Christ. You've never seen him. I wouldn't believe it. And, and sometimes I think we want to think, um, oh, if we can only take you back. If we can only take you back. But you know, Paul was on trial before he was beheaded in Acts 26. And he has appealed to uh, Caesar because of his near death at the hands of the Jews. And so he winds up before Festus, a regional governor of Palestine, and related to Agrippa. And Agrippa comes down to Caesarea. And Paul begins to explain, I saw Christ. I, I saw a living Christ. And as he talks to them, Festus says, stop, stop, Paul. Surely you don't think you can convert me in one presentation the way you have lost your mind. You're out of your head. Paul said, oh, Festus, I am being rational. I have not lost my mind. And then while they're sitting on the throne, he turns to Agrippa, who happened to be the king over the region of Palestine at the time Christ was crucified. He said, oh, Agrippa, you know the teachings of the Jews. You know the law. And you were in Palestine when these things happened. You know, you know we're not fabricating this. You know this is not being made up. I'm being rational. I'm not hallucinating. Hallucination, by the way, only happens individually. 500 people don't hallucinate at the same time. They all saw it, 500 at one time. You want empirical evidence? There's 500 people go over to Jerusalem and say, did you see him? And you can still look them up at the time Paul wrote. And he told King Agrippa, he said, listen to me, King. I'm rational. I'm not out of my mind. Because Festus says, much learning has made you mad, Paul. And he comes right back. Respectfully, Festus, I must tell you, I have not lost my mind. I am thinking rationally. And now I appeal to you, Agrippa. You were there. You know the evidence. This thing was not done in a corner. It was not hidden. This wasn't a back room resurrection. Everybody in Jerusalem was rocked by it. You know that, Agrippa. See, there's a lot of people today, when you present a resurrected Christ, uh, the Bay Area, you know, we're such a hodgepodge of religious backgrounds. And, and if you're a new ager, and if you're a postmodern, you'd say, if that fulfills you, good. I'm so happy for you. But I'm going to worship my rabbit, and I'm fulfilled. Because facts have nothing to do with it. See, it's just a theological fill it, whatever makes you feel good. No, 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 what? Feeling good doesn't make things true or untrue. You remember that great line? You've got some great big dreams, baby, but you've got to be asleep. You've got some big dreams, baby, but you've got to be asleep. 
Christianity wasn't based on a hallucinating apostle. The least man in the world to embrace Christianity was an orthodox, rabbinic, pharisaical Jew like Paul. He didn't need to find a new religion. He had the revealed religion of the time. There was nothing about Christianity that, you know, some people said, well, I want it, it will fulfill me. For Paul, he says, it will get me killed. I embrace Christ not because he fulfills any dream I have. I'll be persecuted for him. I will be beheaded for him. I'll lose my place among my people. I'll lose my status as a Pharisee. He is not a convenient Christ. Some of you are inventing the Christ you want to believe in, but anything you invent, anything you invent will never be able to disagree with you. Anything you invent will never be able to truly save you because you've created a God you want to be, and he doesn't even exist. Paul said, the facts, the facts convinced me. Because today everything is, let's have a philosophical argument. Can the dead rise? Can the dead? Okay, man, let's debate. Let's debate. Says, well, while the philosophers are debating, Christ gets out of the tomb and walks out. Keep on having your discussion. I'm alive. Well, you, the dead can't rise. I know, but I just did. How can you do that? I'm God. I'm who I said I am. Now, come on. Now, listen to me. Atheists, you've had 2,000 years to produce empirical, scientific fact that this is a hoax. I mean, we want the evidence. We don't want, I just don't buy it. Okay, you don't buy it. And you've got that privilege. You have the privilege of being wrong. Anyone, we can be wrong about anything. Well, I don't believe it. I, don't, I just don't buy that. That's okay. We understand that. And we can't make you believe it. Don't want to try to. We're not in the brainwashing. But we are people over here that can say, we've got men in 55 AD staking everything on the claim that Christ factually rose again. And most of the known world at that time didn't decide to say, I'm going to follow Christ. No, no. No, the majority even then did not follow him. But those who did said, I can't undo an unmistakable fact of history. Our founder did what he said. He died. He rose again in the exact time frame he said, three days. And he's been seen by a score of witnesses. We cannot undo that fact. And then the third thing Paul would say, not only do we have an empty tomb, not only do we have uh, many contemporary witnesses that saw Christ, he says, you cannot explain the change that came into our lives because he's alive. And, and nothing would prove this more than the apostolic band that were a bunch of cowards in the last moment. Peter himself, I mean, he's, quite, he's, a, he's a hard coward to figure out. He chops off a guy's ear when they come to arrest Christ. So he looks pretty courageous to me. But ultimately caves into his fear. And in front of a little gal, a little maid, while Christ is being tried, he denies him twice, denies him once to a man, and then the rooster begins, and he goes out and weeps bitterly. He was not a pansy kind of guy, but he was afraid for his life. It said all the disciples fled him. 
But the very same disciples that fled him, 40 days later, preach about him in the city where he was killed, and that's kind of dangerous to do. You ought to go to another city. But they went to the very city where he was tried, false witnesses hired against him, and where he was crucified, and in the same city where they had denied him, in the same place where they had fled him, the same place Peter the great denier of Christ preaches his first sermon and 3,000 people turn to Christ. Explain a changed life that, like that within 40 days. The Apostle Paul, he, he gives a little narrative here. Paul consented to the death and the uh, martyrdom of Stephen. He was there. He held the garments while the guy stoned Stephen. And he was on his way to kill Christians in Acts 9. When God knocks him off the donkey, the light shines brighter than the noonday sun. He said, I want to talk to you. Who are you? I am Christ whom you're persecuting. I'll tell you, it changed his life forever. See, a living Christ is what has changed the lives of people. I often say, I watched a friend of mine. Uh, uh, a dear acquaintance, uh, Ann, was trying to teach a woman to swim at the Y here the other day, trying to teach her how to float on her back. She was panic-stricken. Ann was there trying to help. But uh, you don't know how to swim. Let me say this. I often say, when I'm taking swim lessons, and you've got a monument raised to the world's greatest lifeguard that died last year, it doesn't give me much hope for right now. I'm drowning now. Is anybody on duty now? And Christ, I, you know what I wish you women would learn how to do? You need to invent a piece of jewelry with an empty tomb. He is alive, isn't he? He's not still on the cross. We ought to just have an empty tomb. Some of you, I'm giving you the plan to get rich. Give me a 10% cut. 10% cut. He's alive. Let's advertise that. That's the end of the story. And Paul said, we've got changed lives all over the Roman Empire, and I'm among you Corinthians that grew up in paganism, idolatry. I mean, wild. You people are wild. You're just like the Bay Area. Wild. And he said, Christ changed your life. He says uh, in verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, and your faith is vain. And uh, he, he goes on to say in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sins. Now, that's a little scary. Uh, have you ever got past your past? Have you ever got past your past? It's amazing how much sin you can do before you turn 25. Usually, most decisions by 21 are made by hormones. Little brain cells left at that time. You hope you can learn to live by your mind after 21. But we do crazy things. I know women who aborted children back here. I know men who did things that can haunt them, deeds that if I could just blot it out, I did a men's Bible study at San Quentin, and I was trying for them to know 
the power of the cross to forgive. And I said, please bring up in your mind the worst thing you did. And grown men, some of them in their 50s, one man, a particular part of a Mexican mafia in San Jose, and a couple of stoner boys were there. The stoner kids were just hard. They never moved. But this man up in his 50s began to wail, and an African-American young man began to wail. I said, whoa, what's wrong? He said, when can we let it go? When can we? You told us to bring it up. It's there. Can I let it go? Can I let it go? And then I gave them the verse, while we were yet sinners, at the right time, Christ stepped through the door and says, I want to die for you now. At your worst, I want to die for you. I want to pay for the worst thing you've ever done. And what the empty tomb is, it's God's guarantee that you've got a receipt that my past was buried at the cross and that God was totally paid in full by Christ, by substitute. Paid in full everything owing God's righteousness and the empty tomb is the divine receipt. It's this way. Uh, Christ wrote the check through on Good Friday. I'll pay the debt. It cleared the bank on resurrection morning. The funds are there. He's sufficient to pay your sins, to be alive. How do you know it went through? He's alive. A resurrected Christ says, my past is behind me. I've begun a new life in a risen Christ. What a what a marvelous thing that uh, our future has been guaranteed while our past has been eliminated. I talked to a woman here the other day. I said, does your past ever bother you? Had gone through a divorce, had been a single mom for years, and uh, a lot of things had gone on. I said, does your past still track you down and bug you? She said, no, I, I do what Paul said. Forgetting those things which are behind, I press on toward the mark of the upward calling of God in Christ. Let me tell you, whoever you are, when you come to Christ, everything that would have kept you out of heaven is removed because of his death for you, taking your sins, and the empty tomb is your receipt. Uh, do any of you keep your receipts? See, some of you, <laughs> what's that? What's that? Well, you know, there's some folks, you, you wouldn't care if a creditor came up to you and said, you owe me, you, you uh, bookkeepers and you uh, collectors said, oh, no, look at there. Don't you mess. It says paid. I put the date I paid it. I keep that thing for 30 years. I don't want to be any mistakes. There, it's paid. Well, Christ being alive is heaven's way to say, and listen to what he said. It's been paid in full. He said in Romans 4.25, Christ was delivered up on account of our sins, the cross. But he was raised from the dead on account of our justification. God raised Christ to say, you're now right before me. You trust Christ and you're guaranteed a right place before God. Marvelous, marvelous. Not good works, not trying to be good enough. You know, uh, you folks that try to be good enough to get to heaven, you're the enemies of Christ's death. He didn't die for you being a good person. He died for our sins. Oh, I haven't committed any. You just did. 
being blind to your pride. That's where we start with anyone. Will you admit that you're a sinner? Well, I'm a good sinner. Well, we know, but are you a sinner? You know, I'm not as bad as some people good. I want you to be my neighbor. There's certain sinners that I want to live next to me. Do you know what I mean? And there's certain saints I hope I'm next to in heaven. But I'll have to be with all of you, no matter. But by then, our old nature will be gone. But he said, we'd still be in our sins if Christ was not raised. And he finally says, by the way, I have fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, and we're not sure of what that means. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, um, we, we have no place in Acts that he ever literally was engaged with lions. And we know many Christians were killed in the Colosseum and, and were devoured that way. But we don't know anywhere in the record, unless he's maybe using a play on words, maybe metaphorically saying, uh, when I was in Ephesus, you know, the... Uh, uh, idol trade. They rose up against me. I got arrested in uh, Ephesus and put me on the way to see Caesar in Rome and to my eventual death. But I had a hard time in Ephesus making Christ known. I've been to the amphitheater there in Ephesus. I preached there one time out of the book of Acts. I preached Acts 19 right in the amphitheater where Paul was arrested. Uh, I didn't cause a riot, believe me. There's hardly anyone there but the tour group I was with. But uh, uh, Paul said, I had a hard time in Ephesus. And he says this, uh, I'm a fool and an idiot to put up with this much suffering if he's really not alive. I'm out of my head. I need to be in a J ward because I think I'm Napoleon. You know, I'm, I'm out of, I've got some um, grandiose idea, and I'm, I'm suffering all kinds of persecution. I was an esteemed Ph.D. at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the most educated men of my day, probably spoke five to seven languages. A Jew's Jew, a scholar's scholar, and all of a sudden, I take up with this resurrected Christ. I'm being hated. I'm being thrown out of synagogues. Uh, I'm fighting with wild beasts in Ephesus. I'm being persecuted. Why, why not just forget it all? I want a hedonistic life. I want pleasure, comfort, grandchildren, and a nice rocking chair. And I'm out here being chased down like an animal, arrested. Why? It's kind of like Martin Luther King when he was arrested in Birmingham jail. And all the clergy in Birmingham said, no, Martin, not now. You're pushing, you're pushing the envelope too hard. Uh, lay off of civil rights. Lay off. We, we've done without it for 100 years. And he writes a letter, his famous letter from Birmingham jail. They say it's not time, but my girl can't play at the park. And our women are called racial names. And my daddy's called a boy. And I'm called a this and that. He said, when is it time 
When is it time to let me and my people go to the voting booth? See, as always, people, it's not time. It's not time. And here Paul is saying, if I'm wrong on this point, I'm a fool to be suffering what I'm suffering. But you know what he's going to really say? But I haven't been wrong. That's why I suffer. I'd rather suffer for what's right than die for what's wrong. And so he says, it is a living Christ that spurs me on. When Christ died on the cross, the disciples felt that the throne of their beloved had disappeared in a tomb. His kingdom had shrunk to the narrow dimensions of a grave. His regal robes were now a shroud, his only scepter a weed with which they smote him on the head, his only crown a crown of thorns, his only coronation a claim, the spit they flung through sneering lips, their contempt materialized into a liquid. His only throne, a blood-splotched cross. His only emblems of royal insignia, the marks of the scourge upon his naked back. His only glory, shame. His only inaugural speech, a lonely cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His only reign, six hours of torture on a bloody tree, his only coronation splendor, the black darkness that shrouded the world from 12 noon to 3 p.m., his only king's cup, a sponge filled with vinegar and gall, his only authority, the failure to come down from the cross. Death had trampled God's rose of Sharon into lifeless dust. Death had ridden Ichabod on all of his claims, but alas, it was no dead Christ who lit the signal fires of the Pentecostal upper room. No dead king held the gaze of Stephen when through the showering stones the first Christian martyr lifted his dying eyes to the opening heavens and claimed forgiveness for his murderers. No dead king took command of Saul of Tarsus, blinded him with lightning, and thrust him forth to compass the earth with the truths of redemption. No, Christ is not dead. Wesley, Carey, Moffat, Morrison, Livingston, Justice, and that numberless company of their faith who went forth to make the waste places of idolatry blossom with the flowers of salvation, follow not the banner of a dead king but marched in the train of a living Christ. He is alive. He is alive. There's a famous story that the keeper of Winchester Castle loved to tell. And it was when Cromwell was fighting against the famous French colonel, Napoleon Bonaparte, at the Battle of Waterloo. And they had designed to let England know by way of signals from ships, and they designed a whole system across England to notify them of how the battle went, coming from the sea all the way across England. And if you visit Winchester Castle, they'll tell you the story. And on the day of the battle, they started sending the signal, Wellington 
one word at a time, defeated. The fog came in to the bay, and the message went all the way across England, and all of England went into mourning. The great commander had been killed by the French colonel, Napoleon. The British Isles would soon fall victims of the rule of France. But when the fog lifted in the bay, they repeated the message, and it said, Wellington defeated the enemy. And what happened on Good Friday, it looked like sin defeated Christ. But when the fog lifted three days later, Christ defeated sin. And we got the message right. And a living Christ, a living Christ. I must say this. I'll give you something practical for your lives. Not only do we have a living Christ, it's not just great theology. I often say if I was not a Christian for any other reason, but for the day I buried my mother, and for the day I buried my father, and for the day I buried hundreds of people in this church, and for the day I buried my sister, on and on and on. Um, what, what's true when you're standing at the cemetery and they're reading your poetry, and you're saying dust to dust and ashes to ashes, let's go have a big party or many a culture, let's get a bath so we can get this misery out of our hearts. Donald Gray Barnhouse was in his 40s, and his wife came down with cancer. He's raising several young girls, his daughters. And as they were driving to do his wife's funeral with his two precious girls, he was trying, how can I explain to them what's happened to their mother? How can I soften the blow that mother has died? He said, as they went on the way to the funeral, that all of a sudden, a big truck passed them. And of course, the shadow of the truck came over the car, and the great illustrator that Barnhouse was, he said, girls, what would you rather have come over us, the truck or the shadows? And they said, well, 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 of course, the shadows. He said, well, I just want you to know the truck ran over Christ so that all we've got to face is shadows. But the truck of death took him out, and when he went through the cemetery, he installed lights. And he said, when you die, you shall see me, for as I live, you shall live, and every believer you bury in Christ has this hope. We shall see again. I will meet you in the morning. I'll see my mother. I'll see my grandmother Howard. I visit Visaya, where all these Okies were buried, all these Despo. My grandmother born about 1880, a little short German woman. But I go down there, and I look on a grave, and I say, Grandma, some morning the trump's going to sound, and I'm going to be reunited with you, and we shall dance forever throughout eternity, all because Christ lives. Hear me. Christianity was not built on a coffin lid, but on an empty tomb. He's alive. 